The reason that our country is in the mess that it is in today is not because of the Republicans, it's not because of the Democrats. Let me tell you this, it's because of lame Christians. There is a reproach that comes with being a follower of Christ. We in America have tried to reshape the whole church so that it's palatable and likable in the culture. A church that is accepted well with the culture is usually not accepted well with Christ. The church is a fortress, and a fortress is strength. A fortress is might. Not only a center of defense, but a place of strategic planning and offense. Our God does not expect us to wait for the darkness to enclose around us. He expects us to take up His banner and fight the darkness with His light. You want to know what the biggest problem with America is? The wolf is this country. Gave in. Gave in to public pressure. Gave in to political correctness. One of the greatest curses this country has ever had to deal with is political correctness. Preparing the Christian to shine the light against the darkness of this world. Welcome to Our Mighty Fortress Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Miller, and welcome to the show. We have a very complicated but interesting subject to cover today. But first, please go ahead and hit that follow or subscribe button on the podcast platform in which you're listening to us upon we have several social media platforms with, trust me, all sorts of material that you can listen to and read. Be sure to check us out on our fan page on Facebook, which is growing more and more every day when you type in the search bar at Mighty Fortress 313. Our YouTube channel is growing, and be sure to check that out. Subscribe, hit the notification bell. We're releasing more and more videos every day. The goal is to try to grow that channel more and more. YouTube's kind of a full-time job in itself, so when you're working full-time and doing videos, it's kind of rough. But, nonetheless, the channel is growing. If anything, take a look at our website. All the media is hosted there, ourmightyfortress.com. We have a host of media to look at, videos and articles, and even a link to the merch store to help support the work. And, of course, if you do feel so motivated to donate to the work that we do here, Feel free to do so through our website in the established PayPal link. By following and supporting the podcast, you let me know that you care about the subjects that we discuss. Today, I do want to talk about a subject. A subject that is quite complicated and it can kind of get clouded with theological terminology. But I want to talk about biblical predestination and how it relates to salvation. This is a subject that has literally been debated for centuries. This is going to be a bit more of a deep podcast with a complex subject in view, but we're going to have to put on our thinking caps and expand our minds. While there are scholars that may oversimplify the subject, there are others who will be thoroughly detailed, but not address the spiderweb entanglement of their own theology. I'll explain more on that later. Based upon one's interpretation, there can be many parts of the Bible that are going to be affected when the scope of salvation is revealed. And when addressing the grand scope of salvation, it's important to note that there are scriptures that are hard to be understood and may not be answerable on this side of eternity. Through history, there have been many who have tried to map out God's plan of salvation in detail not in salvation of mankind, but just how 
he works in heaven itself. God tells us how he saves man. He does that through Jesus Christ. But it's different when you try to put the intentions of God and how he does certain things when we don't have that knowledge. And this is what makes this subject so difficult because God's only revealed a certain glimpse about the heaven of heavens and, and what he does there. And he tells us about how he interacts with us here on earth. But there were some other things that this side of eternity we're just not going to know. Now, today, there are many conservative systematic theology series that you can you know obtain and they're going to have an exposition of scriptures and go over various aspects uh, in the areas that we're going to talk about to include you know tagging along their eschatology or the study of last things but knowing that this is a very old debate that has spanned over centuries we're going to have to be humble in the fact that many great men of god have given their thoughts on this subject and we got to take that into consideration. In the same manner of humbleness, we have to acknowledge that there are various parts of scriptures that are revealed in our understanding over time, and that man has not figured out every aspect in which God works. The study of the scriptures is a literally a lifelong task. I personally find it easy to fall into intellectual arrogance and go back upon what we think we already know without pursuing any further study or questioning maybe even what others say. And this, frankly, you have to guard against that. Yes, many great men of God have gone and laid the foundation of this subject, but it may be the case that their understanding at that place in time was limited. There are many examples of this found in scripture that deal with this uh, point, but real quick in the introduction, one is, uh, Psalms chapter 8 and verse 8, and it deals with the paths of the sea. In 1847, the U.S. Naval officer William Fontaine Murray believed that God uh, believed God at his word, and he went out to find what God called the pathways in the oceans. He ultimately discovered currents in the ocean, and because of his charts and research, the entire shipping industry was revolutionized. Given that Psalm 8:8 was written almost 3,000 years before, this was not fully revealed in its full meaning until Mari's work, demonstrating God's ultimate knowledge about the world he created and that man can trust his word. With these concepts in mind, with this podcast, I'm going to try to address the subject of predestination and seek to determine what truth can be extracted from the scriptures. Let's be reminded by one once great theologian who said, quote, no student of the scriptures should be satisfied to traffic only in the results of the study of other men. The field is inexhaustible and its treasures ever new. End quote. We will first look at the, the biblical theology of the subject. And then we're going to respond to the question through church history. The, then we're going to look at the issues with the subject. And of course, I'll get into a few things of what I perceive may be the truth on this matter. With that grand introduction... Let's get right into this. First, we're going to look at the word predestination and what that means in terms of what we would call biblical theology. In the King James Version of the Bible, the word predestinate is found four times. You see it in Romans 8, 29 and 30. You see it in Ephesians 1, 5 and verse 11. The very similar words used in elect or election are found 27 times. Four times in Isaiah, you see that in chapters 42, verse 1, 
chapter 45, verse 4, 65 and verse 9, 65 and verse 22. Then you all see it, also see it throughout the New Testament. Matthew 24, 22, Mark 13, 27, Romans 9, 11, 1 Peter 1, 2, etc. Then you have foreknowledge. You have that twice. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, and 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. The idea that surrounds the words at hand is that God had chosen his believers from the foundation of the world, and they are his elect, and their lives are predetermined. Because the elect were chosen, they are predestinated due to God's foreknowledge. These words are basically synonyms and are speaking of the same concept. Further, the elect are those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and that price that was paid on the cross of Calvary for the sins of the world. The verses used for the elect with Israel must be thought of in the grand scope of God's great salvation in that God's people, both Old and New Testaments, are set aside for him. Gentiles were allowed to come into the faith in the Old Testament and still would have been counted as the elect. This is seen in the Gentiles, such as Rahab and Ruth, and they're especially important in parts of the Messiah's lineage. Now, it's very important to note that predestinate or predestinated, elect, election, and foreknowledge are very loaded theological words by theologians, depending on, you know, who's speaking or writing a book. We as Christians should not be afraid of those words. You just have to rightly interpret what they mean in the grand scope of God's plan. And that is the great struggle. The biblical usage of election means, quote, a sovereign divine purpose so formulated as to be independent of human merit, descent, or cooperation. Such words as chosen are used, drawing, calling, purpose even, are used in accordance with God's ordination and predestination. Now on this subject, Louis, Louis Sperry Schaefer states that there are several truths to election that one can grasp. He says, quote, God has chosen some the salvation, but not all. Divine election was accomplished at the foundation of the world. Election does not rest merely on foreknowledge. This I'm definitely going to address later, as I definitely disagree. And divine election is immutable, and election is in is relation to Christ's mediation. Now, when we see some of these words, we have to understand when the Bible talks about Israel being nationally elected, this is different from the meaning of an individual election. Israel was chosen to stand out from amongst other nations. But it did not mean that each individual was granted eternal life because of this. Now that we have some of the foundation in dealing with the words in question, we're going to go more into them later. But how has the church history or various men uh, written about these particular words throughout church history and what has been the battle in between? Let's take a look. After the ascension of Jesus Christ, and the foundation of a church was laid by the apostles, the early church fathers, in dealing with many heresies, had arisen. They had to systematically address different subjects that were taught by Christ and his disciples. It's important to note that Christ did not leave behind a systematic set of theology books to spell out every doctrine. I, I sometimes think that, well, maybe that would have been extremely helpful, but 
knowing how foolish man is, <laughs> we still would have found some way to mess it up. So <laughs> with Christ doing what he did, I think that was like the best way because obviously he knows what he's doing, right? But we have to understand that through the gospels and the epistles of the apostles, God expects his followers to rightly divide the word. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. The first time that the study of predestination was addressed was by Augustine of Hippo in his response to a British monk named Pelagius. Now, if you have any particular knowledge about the grand argument and the back and forth between those who are of Reformed theology and not, you hear the word uh, Pelagianism or being Pelagian quite a bit as an accusation, but it's not necessarily true. Pelagius believed that, quote, each person enters the world with a will that has no bias in favor of evil. Adam's fall has no direct effect on each human's ability to do right or good, for every individual is directly created by God and therefore does not inherit from Adam either evil or a tendency to do evil, end quote. Now, Pelagius, <laughs> that's obviously wrong because we understand the uh, inherent sinful nature of man. I don't know necessarily many people who would even claim to be Christians today that would actually believe that. Maybe the sinless perfection crowd, but even then they believe that you were a sinner and then you can you know, gradually become sinless, which is obviously not true, but not the other way around. Pelagius did think that man had free will, but so much so that there was no nature of sin passed on the man after Adam. Augustine responded to Pelagius by developing his view of the doctrine of predestination and what this entails. He addressed the sinful nature of man, and it was not only Adam's decision, but also the consequence of Adam's decision was passed down in his line after him and would be corrupt. He also states that without the grace of God, man is unable to avoid sin. Now that's absolutely correct. That is the inherent sinful nature of man. Augustine believed that man was unable to do good without God's grace and that when a person became born again, he was finally given free will to be free from the bondage of sin. Now, if you notice there, he believes that man can have free will even after. That's kind of funny because it contradicts normal Reformed theology today. Pelagianism was condemned by the Council of Ephesus in 431 A.D., and synergism, which means believing God and man work together to accomplish his will, likewise was condemned at the Senate of Orange in 529 AD. In the 9th century, the doctrine of double predestination emerged, which is essentially that both elect and lost are predestined equally, meaning that you're either, when you come and you're born, you're either predestined to hell or predestined to heaven. There was much debate over this new doctrine and Johannes Scotus Irigina, if I can even pronounce that right, proposed an interesting concept. Though he condemned this double predestination doctrine, he did say that since God lives in eternity, he did not see things as either past or future because he can see all at once. Now, this is absolutely fascinating. 
He states that God is outside of time, and therefore the idea of foreknowledge is alien to him. There's actually a lot of truth in this concept, but we're going to address that a little later. Let me build the foundation. You have the 11th through the 13th centuries, so the revival of Augustinian position on predestination. The Reformation saw men such as Martin Luther and John Calvin emerge with new theological perspectives on predestination and how it relates to the elect. Of course, the Catholic Church had gone back towards actual Pelagianism, and Luther had spoken out against such before he was convinced that Augustine was correct in his writings. Calvin would write the Institutes of Christian Religion in 1536, and that would change a lot of way that the Western world views subjects such as predestination, among others. Theodore Beza would succeed Calvin and carry his theology further into double predestination, and even came to the conclusion that God causes people to sin. Now that is absolute and complete and total heresy. I don't care what side of the coin that you're on. In the late 16th century, James Arminius, who was a pastor in Amsterdam, spoke out against Beza's idea of double predestination. Arminius's views were summed up as, quote, God's first absolute decree regarding salvation was not the assignment of certain individuals to eternal life and others to damnation, but the appointment of his son, Jesus Christ, to be the savior of the human race. God decreed that all who repent and believe shall be saved. God has granted to all persons sufficient grace to enable them to believe and freely believe or disbelieve on their own. God predestinates those who he foreknows will believe. End quote. Beza's views on this point had convinced that uh, convinced many, and Arminius's views did not go over well because. He was just going to be charged with Pelagianism and Catholic favoritism. That still goes on today. You see so-called apologists use that, use that slander uh, against people who bring up the idea of having free will or, or whatever not. No matter what kind of the, no matter what side of the spectrum that they're on, they're just charged with being Pelagian or in favor of Catholicism. The same thing happens 500 years later. Now, Calvinists ultimately view election as God choosing certain individuals for his special favors. Arminianism, because of John Wesley, not Arminius. That's important to note. When somebody says Arminianism, when they use it as a theological term, they're talking about the teachings of John Wesley. Now, this would morph into universalism, which is... God's grace is given to all humans indiscriminately, meaning that essentially you lead to the whole all paths lead to God idea. This universalism prevailed in Wesleyan churches or Methodist churches and ultimately skewed even the original statements of Arminius himself. Calvinists would come in a few different forms, uh, but the predestination and the absence of the ability for man to make choices independently of God are the foundation of their doctrine. Now, that was a lot to go over in a small amount of time. People write books, long volumes of books on this subject, and we're really condensing down into 30, 40 minutes. So if you got to take a mental break here, now is a good time to do it before you carry on. Now, we're going to move on to the issues 
with this particular subject. There are some issues that one's going to have to deal with when it comes to the subject of predestination of the elect. The popular theological term to refer to the order of salvation, or sometimes you'll hear the Latin term, ordo salutis, in this order of salvation, one that holds to a reformed or Calvinist position, states that regeneration precedes faith. One that holds that position may equate such as a light switch. They claim that the bulb is the faith and the light switch is God and his allowance for regeneration due to his predestination. You cannot have one without the other, but the regeneration, the switch, comes first. Now, since we're speaking of the events that do occur simultaneously, one can think that it, it does not matter. But the problem then lies when, it's, when you look at scripture. In John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, and 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1, we see that faith logically precedes regeneration. One can state that on the basis of John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, the two events can occur practically at the same time. It should be noted that John Calvin himself taught that faith precedes regeneration, but his successor, Theodore Beza, and his followers switched the order. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, chapter 20 and verse 21, puts repentance before faith. But then in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9, he puts faith before repentance. The main issue with the previously stated points is that it would be a mistake to separate them into a time sequence. The point is made that when one evaluates the events that occurs in a person's salvation, and we think about that person in Christ within time, the order would be found to be logical and not chronological, if that makes any sense. All of these things are taking place at the same time, but we as man, we're trying to put them in a specific order when these events are instantaneous. The next issue is how a person or persons will correspond with God's election of believers and non-election of unbelievers. How much freedom does a man have in choosing God in this life? Think about it. This comes down to primarily two definitions of what free will means. The first is libertarian free will, which means, quote, the ability to refrain or not refrain from any moral action, end quote. The compatibilist will define free will as, quote, one who makes choices that are consistent with his nature, end quote. It is important to note that while the scriptures seem to make room for libertarian free will of man, the Calvinist who holds to the compatibilism states that God decrees the free will of man, and it makes it seem as though he is free, but such it was decreed from the foundation of the world. So you have an illusion of free will, they say. There are some on other issues that can be looked in dealing with the predestination of man and different viewpoints, but these are the major make or break theological issues of the subject at hand. And these are the two positions we have to consider. Are we determined or do we have libertarian free will? As complex as this subject is, and really, if you haven't already fallen asleep already, I hope not. I hope I'm able to pique your interest in such a very complicated subject. I really am. This subject is very complicated because you have scriptures on both 
sides of the coin. But one thing is very, very consistent. The wrong view of where God is. I'm going to talk more about that in a second. But remember that this all boils down to where you view God and where he is at in relation to us. I've been asked, well, are you a Calvinist or are you Arminian? As if there's only two choices to be, which is a false dichotomy. I just simply respond, I'm a Bible believer. Of course, <laughs> that has set off quite a few lively discussions, depending upon who you're talking with. When one reads the various authors spanning over the last 1,500 years, it may seem as though is there, there's not a complete or definite answer to the question on how God's predestination works. We just believe it does. Of course, it does work, so there's no reason to question that, but we just don't know how it works. I do have to remind us of the fact that I have to note this, that not every aspect of God and how he works may be detectable. Theologians must also be willing to address the hard questions found in scriptures and not rationally just try to explain away everything with some naturalistic point of view. They do this all the time with scriptures like Genesis 6-4 and 1 Samuel 28-12-13. Those are examples. They just give rationalistic explanations and just ignore the supernatural. With that foundation, there have been many amazing discoveries, even in the realm of science, that may help us, well, shed some light on this area anyways and be able to interpret maybe, just maybe, where God is in perspective to us and how that works. Even though, once again, you're not going to know every aspect of it because you're not in the heaven of heavens uh, yourself. So we're going to see if this helps paint a better picture of how God relates and interacts with mankind. The view of John Calvin primarily had to do with the predestination and election of the saints and that they were chosen from the foundation of the world. While this is not a defense for the Reformed position, it should be noted that Scripture states in several places with some peculiar verses that demonstrate why the Reformers could come to this point of view. Matthew uh, 25 and verse 34, it says, quote, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You have Luke 11, verse 50. It says that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. John 17, verse 24 says, quote, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, and that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, verse 4 says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Both Hebrews 4.3 and 9.26 state about Jesus' sufferings and works have been done from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13 verse 8 states that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Finally, Revelation 17 and verse 8 states, Whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Now, God is outside the realm of time itself. Stated in Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15, it says, quote, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, end quote. 
that's very important to know. It names eternity as a proper place. So that's not a part of the universe. He inhabits eternity. We call that the heaven of heavens. Now, to explain this notion about God not being within the realm of time, a foundation's got to be laid for this. Now, just follow me pretty closely here. The scripture sets out several places that support this notion, such as Isaiah 57, verse 15, as previously mentioned, and Habakkuk 1, and verse 13, which says, quote, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity, end quote. The entire universe is marred with sin and is set towards destruction. Stars are blowing up. Things are colliding. Things are being destroyed. Science calls this the second law of thermodynamics or the law of entropy. We call it the effects of sin. And the Bible had it right first, not science. This is, like I said, why stars explode and even time itself is unraveling. You can hear that from various astrophysicists. They can't seem to figure out why that is, but that time itself is unraveling. We're losing time. They actually uh, manually fix the clocks to go back uh, to the time of where it's supposed to be. We lose like point something, something, zero, zero, point seconds every year or, or whatever. I, I forget the specific numbers to it, but they just adjust the clocks and we just think it always counts the same way. You have the atomic clocks in Greenwich, England, and also in Boulder, Colorado, two different uh, points of gravity, and you have differences between the clocks. Pretty fascinating stuff when you study it out. Now, if God hates sin and cannot even look upon it, then you can't say that the heaven of heavens is contained within or even close to the time uh, or the frame of time and the marred universe. That means that where God lives is completely outside of our universe. He is outside of time. His time is not our time. <laughs> the, the funny joke goes, what time is it in heaven? Is he on Pacific Standard Time? Is he on Middle Eastern Time, aligning with Jerusalem? I mean, what, what time zone is he in? <laughs> well, the answer to that question, he's not on anybody's time because he's outside of it. Now, an interesting statement was made by the astrophysicist Paul Davies. He's pretty well known in this study of time. He says that, quote, The Western culture can't seem to divest itself of the belief in the existence of time as an independently real entity, God-given and absolute. People can accept that clocks may do funny things and that the human mind may play tricks, but they won't want to attribute such phenomena to time itself only to the way that we experience or measure time end quote given that time has been demonstrated in like 16 or 17 different ways as being relative and being a, a, a thing it blows astrophysicists mind some of the brightest minds that man can produce no wonder that even confounds even theologians when it comes to this subject it was mentioned before in early, or earlier that modern science confirms various aspects of scripture, although secularists often do not claim that it does. With the emergence of the general theory of relativity, it clears up several scriptural, scriptural passages that were once hard to interpret. The phrase about something being done from the foundation of the world, that shows us that time had a specific starting point which is creation as we know from the christian scriptures 
And we're going to see a little later why that is so very, very important. Because if God is outside of that, from his perspective, he's going to see things quite a bit differently than how, than how we write our theology books about where he's at and how he correlates with us. Now, going back to the theory of relativity, it was you know designed and being worked upon by Albert Einstein, eventually proved in the 1970s with the eternal, uh, not eternal clocks, <laughs> the atomic clocks being sent in different directions around the world, coming back at different times. Time dilation is the actual difference of elapsed time between two events as measured by observers, either moving relative to each other or differently situated from gravitational masses. To simplify, it means that time is passing depending on your rate of speed or your acceleration, the nature of your environment, the earth or space, and the gravitational forces upon the object. Time itself is considered a property, and if you simplify it even more, it's a thing. There's a great wealth of information that's fascinating about that particular theory, but for the sake of argument, we'll just keep it to its basic format. In scripture, God already provided us with this information thousands of years ago in so many various passages speaking from the beginning of creation. Before the 1970s, they didn't adhere to the Big Bang model, and I don't adhere to the Big Bang model. I think it's a cheap cop-out from when they're trying to you know, ignore creation. But before that, they thought this of this eternal state of the universe. And the only reason why they didn't want to switch to the Big Bang model in the first place is, oh, it sounds too much like creation. Well, how about you do some actual science, right? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, God creates time. You have Ecclesiastes chapter 3 stating that there is a time for everything. Then you have the book of Revelation where God ends and reshapes time itself after the millennial reign of Christ. That's in Revelation chapter 10 and verse 6. The belief that God and the heaven of heavens was outside of the realm of time and the universe was held by the Old Testament Jewish saints. You have the early church, even Jewish scholars such as Mamonides. But this particular knowledge ended up being somewhat lost. And I... I tend to believe in this particular theory that it was because of the rise of Greek philosophy because Thomas Aquinas brought the teachings of Aristotle and Plato into Christian theology. And because of that, then you have this eternal state model and that type of thing being reinstituted uh, into Christian philosophy. But anyways, that's beside the point. God is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end of time. He is the picture that is given in the universe. The universe itself is laid out before God. Though the universe is now sin-cursed, he has still oriented his plan of salvation from the foundation of time itself because he saw what would happen. That's important to note. He's outside of time. He sees the beginning the Alpha, and the Omega, the end. And all of that, by the way, is going to be burned up and made anew. Which actually, that's an interesting thought. (laughs) Are we going to be in eternity just watching him make the world all over again and then we just go into it? I don't know how that works. God doesn't really tell us, but it's kind of fascinating to think about and just philosophize a bit, I guess. 
Now, I do not hold to a reformed theology position on predestination and election because I believe it's very limited in scope and understanding of the world that God has placed us in. Many views written inside and outside of reformed theology puts God inside our natural timeline and thus makes a very critical error when trying to perform exegesis upon certain passages of scripture that step outside the realm of time. Man can still have free will and God would still have knowledge of man's choices already since he is outside of time and the timeline of the natural world is just set before him. Now this idea opens up other doors in the theological realm, but I want to stay narrowed in on predestination and election. God states in many places in scripture that his desire for man is that they would repent and turn to him. The book of Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 32 says, quote, For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn, ye, turn yourselves and live ye, end quote. If God decreed from the foundation of the world that certain of mankind would be condemned, then and only a certain you know, select group would see salvation, then how could God make such a powerful statement given in the previous verse in Ezekiel? It wouldn't even make sense because if he's, if we're all predestined, then it doesn't matter. You have no choice. You're, he is the grand puppet master then. Unless you do have a choice because he is outside of time and he calls men to heaven. Now, this brings up the question, well, because God has knowledge means this, he, you know, you still don't have free will. I'm not going to go down that road. Because I do believe that just because God has knowledge of something, it has nothing to do with the choices that you make. You're still making your choices. God is not the grand puppet master making you do stuff. While I'm not going to discuss every argument that a Calvinist may respond with, the root of the entire issue of this debate rests upon God's communicable and non-communicable attributes. What is that? God's communicable attributes are those such as love, rationale, etc. Those are attributes that are given to mankind. His non-communicable attributes or attributes not given to us are those like omniscience, uh, omnipotence, you know, his, his God-given power type of thing. Uh, we can't create worlds or whatever. So th those are not granted to us. The real foundation of the debate is that the Calvinist believes that libertarian free will is a non-communicable attribute because if man had such, somehow God would just lose his sovereignty. Not only is there no biblical foundation for that position, but one could not effectively demonstrate how God would lose his sovereignty over his creation. One theologian simply puts this as, quote, the Calvinist God is a God that is not sovereign enough, not powerful enough, not all-knowing enough, because the only way he can get the desired results is by pre-programming man, end quote. Well, you know, if you're going to take the reform position, then you have to be honest. That would be an honest statement. When presented with God essentially being outside of time, a well-known Calvinist apologist, Dr. James White, didn't even know how to address the statement because the Calvinist framework does not allow for such to take place. 
Now, James White is especially critical and, might I say, extremely arrogant when it comes to talking with people who, who, who believe in libertarian free will. He'll call them Pelagian or semi-Pelagian or uh, pro-Catholic in their views. From there, you can just shift over to you know how he makes moral choices. If you take the opposite position, then it all seems to make the scriptures about God wanting relations with man not to make sense because man has no will. He's just a puppet. The Calvinists must ponder that the Lamb and the prophets were slain from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13.8, Luke 11.50, and the works of God finished from the foundation of the world, Hebrews 4.3, and God's elect chosen from the foundation of the world, Revelation 17.8, yet can the heaven of heavens itself lie outside the frame of time of this world, and thus God knows the choices of men, and who will choose him? Romans 10 verse 17 states that faith comes by hearing the word of God. And in Mark chapter 10 verse 17, a young ruler came to Jesus Christ inquiring how he could attain eternal life. This man was sincere, but he was not willing to bear the cross and follow Christ. The young man made his choice, though he heard the word of God himself, Jesus Christ. This cannot be easily waved off, as the young ruler was not just a part of the elect of God, because it states in verse 21 that then Jesus beholding him loved him. Now God knew the response of the young man because he would see the choices of men because he's outside of time. If God, as some sort of cosmic puppet master, decrees some men to be righteous and some to sin, then what's the purpose of even putting the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden in the first place? This seriously attacks the character of God via Calvinistic worldview. Because if there is no evil and sin, then everyone will be in everyone would be perfect in the new heaven and new earth. Or if you make God making man sin, then you make him the author of evil, which is probably the greatest heresy you could possibly even come up with. And it's unfortunate that there are many Calvinists that have already just gone ahead and gone that route. And they just said, well, we can't explain it, but we know that God's the author of sin. They don't say it like that, but that's how they communicate it. And they say, but we're okay with that because he's God, he's sovereign, he's creator of all. Well, then he's no longer holy. I mean, you just blew away one of his most important attributes and what makes him God. Now, there is a very interesting counter perspective that does seem to make sense. I do think it needs to be worked on a little bit more, but it does seem to work. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus Christ states, quote, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, end quote. This goes back to why God put the tree of the knowledge good and evil in the middle of the Garden of Eden. God put that tree there so that man would make a moral choice to obey God. Ultimately, God wanted man to freely choose to love and obey him. The master of the universe wanted communion and fellowship with his creation. It's interesting to note that even more ancient Jewish writings would say that, quote, Moses gave Israel 613 commandments. 
Then King David reduced them to 11. That's in Psalm 15. Isaiah then brought them down to six commandments. That's Isaiah 33 verses 15 through 16. Then Micah, the book of Micah, brought it down to three commandments. That's Micah 6, 8. And quote, Jesus Christ was saying or trying to paint a very vivid picture in how man should live his life and also commune with God. The Ten Commandments, for instance, depict the entirety of the law. You have the first four commandments dealing between your relationship between you and God. The rest of the six commandments deal with your relationship between you and man. That's very important. God gave his law of thou shalt and thou shalt not to help man uh, guide him or guide man through this life. But the ultimate ethics that God wanted man to learn was the ethic of love. That's the whole point. Now, love, of course, is defined by holiness, and God is the one who defines that word love and what it means. That's important. But the ultimate ethics to learn is the supreme ethic of love. The greatest commands were to love the Lord God with all your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. One thing you have to understand is that freedom and love walk hand in hand with each other. If God compels man like some machine, then it's impossible for man to love God freely in return. If there is not libertarian free will, then there cannot be love, only compliance to a divine dictator. The study of predestination and election in this podcast is definitely not exhaustive. And like I said, we're trying to wrap up a 1,500-year debate into a 45-minute presentation here. And this is probably one of the longer podcasts I've actually done. Because every aspect of this theology can just fill hundreds of pages, thousands of pages of written work. I hope that there have been several principles demonstrated that could get, if you're on the Reformed side or the Arminian side or persuasion, just to think about the positions a little bit more and understand that there's more to this world than what's being revealed just through our simplistic theologies to help us understand God's relationship with man. The biblical theology of predestination and election and the perspectives of such in church history were discussed and we found that man's revelation and understanding of this concept as being progressive. That's important to know. Even some of the early thinkers didn't understand it. Ancient Jewish writers and early church fathers knew God was outside time they didn't understand the entirety of the whole thing they didn't know the the general theory of relativity or anything else like that they just knew that god was outside of time because that's how the scriptures put them they just understood that even though they didn't know the specifics though viewing some of the theological issues and the implications of each i think we have shown that this subject has to be thought through um not just not just because of what you think about predestination in itself, whether being predestined to heaven or hell, but really it's about God's character. Do you make him the author of sin? That's very important. And how you view theology or how you interpret scriptures through your theology. That's why our podcast has the, the saying, I, I looked it up. Nobody's ever said this. <laughs> it is a saying directly you know, related with me. Don't let your theology interrupt the study of God. Theology is the study of God, but a lot of times we try to study God with our own theology and we try to use that lens. And that's why you have all this weird stuff that's out there. 
hopefully in the near future there'll be journal articles or books written on this further in detail but or maybe lots more preaching and teaching but it does have implications the implications are that reformed theology would unravel on its core and so would arminianism and all of such would have to be reformed which is ironic <laughs> And this could be the reason why the subject is not addressed in detail by Calvinists for the last 30 years. That's why somebody who is smart aleck as, you know, uh, Dr. James White would just totally and completely ignore this subject because of its implications. We also have to come to a fuller understanding of the scriptures and strive to be the students of the word in its truest sense. Feel free to take various aspects of things that I've said and just go and study it out and come to your own conclusions you're going to see what i'm saying is true and you have to think about the logical steps of what people are trying to say where does determinism lead you can't stop that train it leads towards god being the author of sin well if that's not the case then what's the other exception or the other side is there only two sides to this coin so i hope that you can further your own study in the, in this particular subject with that being said, I want to thank you for listening and be sure to follow us on the podcast media. Please take a look at our website, ourmightyfortress.com and subscribe for more updates. Stay tuned next time for more great content and remember to find your refuge and strength in our mighty fortress.